everyone. This is Kate Stanton, host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Isabel Kenyon, CEO and founder of Calibrate. Founded in 2020, Calibrate is a metabolic health company on a mission to change the way the world treats weight. In August of 2021, Calibrate raised a $100 million Series B round led by Founders Fund and Tiger Global. Since then, the company has hired hundreds of new employees, onboarded thousands of new patients, released its first results report, and geared up to launch its first enterprise clients. Before founding Calibrate, Isabel worked in investment banking, e-commerce, and healthcare. Isabel and I discussed her own experiences with the healthcare system, why Calibrate's emphasis on metabolic health represents a paradigm shift in how we treat weight loss and obesity, Calibrate's clinical model, and Isabel's approach to leading a fast-growing company. Isabel, thank you so much for joining me on The Pulse. I'm really excited to be speaking with you today. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me, Kate. Let's dive right in. And we have a tradition of asking our guests an icebreaker to kick us off. So when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? The president. (laughs) Say more. I still do. (laughs) (laughs) Calibrate to the presidency. (laughs) Maybe a couple stops in between. Many kids want to be the president. What do you think it was about you as a child that made that seem like a good fit for you? (laughs) I'm an oldest child and a Virgo. For for people who follow either astrology or birth order, I think it will make a lot of sense. Um, Got it. I'm going to follow up with all my um, eldest child Virgo friends and see if um, there's a pattern here. <laughs> so talking about where your career actually went, and there's definitely still time to become president, but you began your career in finance and then worked in e-commerce and then moved into healthcare. So I'd love to hear a bit about the main drivers behind these transitions between industries, but then also what any of the common threads were across these experiences. And I think another way to put it is what changed over time that led you to go into new and different areas and, and what remained consistent in terms of what you wanted to get out of your career. Absolutely. I think to start at the top, I've always just loved learning new things. I'm an constant, always on learner. And I started studying Chinese as an undergrad at Penn, spent my summers living and working in China, spent a semester living and working in China, and just fell in love with the pace, the way that things were changing so quickly, and made a decision that I really wanted to work full-time in China after school. And everyone at Penn at the time, I bet it's different today, started their careers in investment banking or consulting. <laughs> and so I applied for all of the jobs that I could find in investment making or consulting in Hong Kong and ended up interning there and then taking a role there full time and got to spend the next couple of years just traveling all over Asia, working on projects in Southeast Asia throughout China and really learning so much and just seeing a region that was developing so quickly and changing so quickly. And a really smart recruiter called me and said, you've been living and working in Asia. You obviously like high growth things. Have you thought about working in startups? And I was like, no, (laughs) tell me more about startups. And ultimately ended up taking a job at a startup in London in the e-commerce space and was just super passionate. I had opened, um, I've kind of like grown up as an entrepreneur, had opened a store with my mom in college. And so knew I loved selling things to people and figuring out how that worked, but ultimately loved 
e-commerce, moved back to New York, worked for a guy who was incubating and building e-commerce businesses and loved this idea of following the consumer and figuring out what was next for the consumer. During that time, I broke my back in pelvis skiing and it was my first real interaction with the healthcare system. And I vowed to spend the rest of my career fixing the healthcare system. It just seemed so fundamentally broken to me. And one of the things I often say about it is that it seemed to me like one big retail business that should be an e-commerce business. <laughs> and that the things that we valued in e-commerce at the time, price transparency, product transparency, were not coming to light in healthcare. And I think it was the right amount of naivete to have to decide to spend your career fixing healthcare because otherwise you would never do it. But I jumped in and joined the early team at Capsule, a pharmacy startup in New York, started by another Penn grad and got to learn just the inside out of how, of how the healthcare system works and spent a lot of time learning about the different incentives and following the money and figuring out what's next for the consumer in healthcare and what's changing and why, and was spending a lot of time thinking about that when my mom called me and said, you have to help me find a doctor to help me lose weight. And I said, why? <laughs> and she said, I've tried everything. I've done everything. It doesn't work anymore. There has to be a medical solution. And I did. I helped her find a doctor in New York at a fancy academic research hospital and learned that every fancy academic research hospital in the country has an obesity board certified doctor. And they are helping to treat obesity for a couple thousand patients a year. And the more I learned about my mom's experience and about what, what the doctor shared, the more I realized there was just this fundamental mismatch between the 200 million of my mom and the 5,000 of those doctors. And ultimately those doctors have known for almost three decades really based on actually research from a guy at Penn named Tom Wadden, that the combination of medication and what's referred to as an intensive lifestyle intervention, which is actually an insurance billing code, is one of the most effective things, if not the only effective thing we have for treating obesity today. And the way that it works is by improving your underlying metabolic health. And those two things work as catalysts for each other, the intensive lifestyle intervention and the medication to change your underlying physiology in a way that improves your metabolic health. And for me, that was just this massive aha moment. Like we've known how to treat obesity for decades and it's been sitting in fancy academic research hospitals instead of getting to people like why? And I just started peeling back the layers and became completely obsessed with following the money, with figuring out what the business could, could be there and how you could really get access to more people in more places, ultimately way more affordably. And that was really where you know, the idea for Calibrate came from, which isn't what you asked, but you did ask how my career got here. Um, so a partial answer. No, that's, that's great. Thank you for sharing that journey. And so many things I want to pick up on based on what you said. So the first is around these treatment models that work staying within fancy academic medical centers, as you put it. I've had a number of interviews at this point and that has been a trend across all three areas that the, the companies I've been speaking with focus on. So you, you started to touch on, I think, why you think they stay within, within the confines of these institutions and only treat a few thousand patients despite the millions who need it. Why do you think that these treatment models stay so confined to, to just a few who, who receive it? I think it's really structural. So the first thing is once we learn something in medicine, then we have a really high bar, which is a good thing for clinical validation. And we go and we get things peer reviewed and we publish them. 
And then we go to conferences and we share them. And unfortunately, this all happens like fairly analog and fairly slow motion. And then things can start to become the standard of care. And then they can start to get taught in med school. And then they can start to, you know, then you can start to have things like years after people go through med school, start to get practiced in the real world. And I think that just fundamentally, that means that unless med school curriculums are constantly shifting and adapting, we are not constantly changing the standard of care. And I think that is ultimately at its core, one of the most broken pieces and one of the hardest to solve pieces because there's a real trade-off between quality and time there. Other things I think are probably more fundamentally around like who the experience was designed for, which is never the consumer in healthcare. We never designed the experience around the consumer. We designed the experience around the payer and (laughs) um, making sure that we understand, you know, if you were to design around the consumer and if you were to build a wellness system instead of a um, illness system, what would that look like? And how could you think about in how what would make you think about preventative care and what would incentivize preventative care? And so one of the models that I look to a lot is the UK. The population looks a lot like the US, but there's a single payer. And that single payer is therefore one on the hook for the cost over time, but two has longitudinal data, right? <laughs> the ultimate. And so they know, they know what happens if you treat obesity. They know what happens if you treat eating disorders. They know what happens if you don't treat eating disorders. They know what happens if you don't treat obesity. And so the UK has always been a first mover in terms of what they're willing to do. And I think that's a really interesting comp for the US market to have. Because if you work for an employer for 1.9 years, which is the average time before the great resignation that someone worked for an employer, I don't have an updated stat. But if you work for an employer for 1.9 years, what's incentivizing that employer to pay for your health care in 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. The fragmentation issue is a huge problem. And I like how you sort of compared it to a comparable system, both in terms of who's paying for it, but also I think where data is stored. So, so another thing that you mentioned was the consumerization of healthcare, which is kind of a buzzy term in healthcare right now. And I would say That's that, that health- one. and I've been I've been like arguing with investors about this because I say <laughs> consumers pay for their healthcare, and they say, "Oh, you mean because deductibles and more people have deductibles now than ever before?" And I'm like, "Sure, that's true, but." always, right? Like if you're an employer, like I'm an employer, I have 500 employees now. It's terrifying. But um, like <laughs> I, I, the employer have two choices. I can either pay people more or I can pay them and pay for their healthcare, right? Like the dollars are going in one of the two places. And I think about the total cost of employing people as the two things combined. I never <laughs> think about them separately. And so ultimately like consumers have always been paying for their healthcare in the US because they're either going to get paid more or they're going to um, get paid less and have health insurance. And so I've, it's kind of like a myth to me that like the deductible is the shift there. I think the shift there is consumer expectations, right? And Bezos did such a good shareholder letter on this a couple of years ago where he said like, like Amazon can't keep up with consumer expectations. <laughs> the bar is always higher for the consumer and it has compressed so much in the last 20 years and I think that is the, the meaningful shift here, which is that consumers have completely different expectations now, right? And we see this at Calibrate. Like we don't meet consumer expectations and we purpose built around a consumer two years ago and like less than two years ago. And they, they change so quickly. And I think that the consumer is just pushing innovation at such a fast pace now. And it is so good for the ultimate outcome here because they are just demanding things that have never been demanded from the system before, like access to their own data to share. 
I guess as a follow-up to that, I, I think you touched on sort of what, why you're optimistic about healthcare continuing to be more consumer-driven, but anything else you want to share on that? And then I think the, the thing that I'm potentially very curious about is to get to an even more consumer-driven system, what do you think needs to change structurally? And I think you touched on this sort of with the single-payer fragmentation piece, but what, what needs to change structurally to allow this larger transition to happen? The first question, so last summer, we did a Series B and Optum Ventures invested, which is different from United Health Group or Optum, the business that they own, but it is related. And I spend a lot of time thinking about this. And I think that the thing that's different this time, because there was this entire wave of direct-to-consumer healthcare and digital health that totally failed and totally flopped because consumers don't want to pay for their healthcare. And if you could see me, you'd know I was using air quotes because like I <laughs> explained, I think they do pay for their healthcare. Um, but there was this, it, there, there was this idea that consumers didn't want to pay for their healthcare. And so if you were to go direct to consumer, there'd be no market and you need to go solve for the payer. And so you need to raise large amounts of money. And there it's really hard to innovate because you've got to go with like an 18, 24 month sales cycle to a payer and convince them why to build something first and, you know, if like if I were to launch Calibrate 10 years ago, that would have been the prevailing sentiment. Like before you do anything, go get a payer contract, like mm-hmm. raise enough money to build a small team to go sell a payer and then build a product. And that is just so fundamentally messed up. Like, <laughs> like I don't even really know where to start. So one, in that case, you're no longer building a product for the consumer. You're building a product for a payer mm-hmm. to sell a consumer. And now that I'm on that side of the business, so we started by building for the consumer, selling to the consumer, and then what's now called B2C2B yeah. in digital health, we are now selling that product into employers. And I'm still having employers, and we're increasingly starting to sell into health plans and to PBMs, I'm still having those health plans, those PBMs and those employers say, oh, do it differently. Change it. Change the product. Change the price. Change the change the structure. Change. I'm like, no. I'm like, I have validation that this thing works. We started with outcomes. And the validation is from the consumer. So like, why would we change it based on what you think they want or what you would prefer? Or like, like it's just completely insane. And so to to start there is so fundamentally broken. And I think that the shift towards this B to C to B model, where you're actually putting the consumer first from the very beginning is going to be really powerful and really meaningful over time because you've validated that a consumer actually wants it. And I think part of what makes that possible is, is deductibles. I think part of what makes that possible is consumer expectations changing. And then just like we are living, especially through COVID, in this incredibly difficult time for consumers and the vulnerability of their health and navigating their health and figuring out how to get access to health. And so I think like this idea that the consumer is the navigator is to me what is really fundamentally changing the equation here because the consumer is now calling their daughter and saying, you have to help me find a doctor to do this. Right. And I don't know that that conversation would have happened 10 years ago either. I want to circle back to the the business model piece and who you're selling to and, and the rationale for that. But before we do that, I want to just set some basics around what Calibrate is and does. And, and first, I think getting a better understanding of the distinction between metabolic health as opposed to the more historically common language we hear around weight management, such as weight loss or willpower management. So can you briefly describe what is metabolic health and why does this distinction matter? 
this was the thing that I had to understand to start this business. And so it is the most important place to start. And this is the idea that you have a metabolic system and that system is the combination of organs and hormones that determine your body's consumption of energy. And your metabolic health as defined by the CDC is measured by five factors. Your waist circumference, not your height, not your weight, not the relationship between your height and your weight, which is your BMI, your blood sugar, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, and your triglycerides, or your, the fat in your blood. Those five things together combine to make up your metabolic health. And the CDC defines you as in good metabolic health if you can be in a normal range for those five things without medication, which is a pretty messed up way to start the definition of health, by the way. <laughs> and so I would just start by saying that the CDC determines that seven out of eight, more than 88% of Americans are not in good metabolic health. So we're in crisis. And I think that's a really important place to start and a really important thing to understand. When your body is not in strong metabolic health, not in good metabolic health, you are fundamentally dysregulated and your body is doing everything that it can to defend a higher weight, which is how, how weight comes into play and how terms like weight loss and weight management came into play. And so the ultimate idea that you could drive your weight as distinct or separate from changing your metabolic health is flawed. It's broken. It's not true. And it's about willpower. And that is a message that marketers have been selling around weight loss forever. And it is fundamentally, scientifically, not evidence-based and not true. And this idea is that, you know, the less calories that you eat and the more calories that you consume the lower you can drive your weight over time. And that operating at a gap, the calories in, calories out model is how you lose weight, how you gain weight. It's one of those things that I call the world is flat model where like, <laughs> it makes sense. It kind of looks like the world is flat. Like if you think about it, like kind of feels like the world is flat. And so we're all like, yeah, that's a good working hypothesis. The world is flat. And that's how the calories model was for a long time. <laughs> and now we know that it's much more complex that you, your weight is ultimately determined by a really complex interaction between your genetics, your hormones, your biology, your environment. Your environment is different than your lifestyle. And I want to just really clarify that. If I had gotten asthma from living in Hong Kong where the air pollution is 100 times worse than the air pollution in New York, no one would have told me that was a lifestyle choice or based on my willpower. They would have told me that was an environmental outcome. If you live in the US and you don't have time or money to access childcare, to access healthy food, to have time to exercise. That is an environmental outcome. We have moved to a completely sedentary lifestyle. We have poisoned our food supply. Like we have literally created <laughs> addicting food. Like sugar is literally in everything we eat now. And the idea that you could live in the US in 2022 and not have overweight or obesity is truly a minority now. Like we are talking about 25% of Americans and it, that you could be in good metabolic health. We are talking about one in eight Americans. Like it's, it, it's totally insane. It's completely broken. And so that, that is a really meaningful shift in language and language matters, but it's also a really meaningful shift in science and our understanding of what actually drives weight. And this idea that to be at a healthy weight or a normal weight, you have to be using your willpower is just fundamentally broken because your willpower cannot supersede your biology, which is going to push that weight higher and higher and then make your body defend that weight. 
really interesting and just kind of crazy to hear how just how how fundamentally differently I think Americans and people around the world have been thinking about this in in such contrast for for so many years. So now that we understand what metabolic health is, can you walk us through the experience of a calibrate patient within their first year? I know a year is the standard length of primary engagement for them. So high level, what does that experience look like? For sure. So today you learn about Calibrate. You come to the website and make sure you're eligible for Calibrate. So today that means making sure that you would be eligible to take GLP-1 medications, which are the medications we use today. Calibrate is really a platform. And so over time, think about the lifestyle intervention and the medication being the two core components of that platform, but those things being iterable as we go. So as we learn what that lifestyle intervention needs to include, or as we learn about new medications and those market, those medications are approved and in the market, we'll be able to combine those things differently. But Calibrate is ultimately a platform that combines lifestyle intervention with medication for better outcomes than either one alone. Once we find out that you're eligible for the medication, we sign you up for the program. You today, the consumer, pay us upfront for the cost of the Calibrate service. And then you fill out 150 question intake, your health history, your family's health history, and your weight history. At your highest and lowest weights, how is your eating? How is your sleep? How is your energy level, your exercise? How is your emotional health? And this is for a lot of people the first time that they will feel like they've fully documented this, right? That they've fully gotten this experience of seeing a doctor who's focused on their overall metabolic health and thinking about those different behaviors and how they interact with the metabolic health. A doctor will order labs or review existing lab work. And then a doctor will review the labs as they come back. And then you will get on a face-to-face 45-minute video visit with a doctor. For most people, this will be the first and only time that they've spent 45 minutes face-to-face with a doctor. And the only time that they spent time with a doctor who's seen their lab results before their appointment and read their intake before their appointment. Think about how totally broken that is. You go to the doctor, you fill out tons and tons of forms. Do you believe that the doctor looks at those forms before they see you? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And then the doctor orders labs and then they tell you that they'll be in like some app you can't log into and they'll call you if anything's irregular. It's like, (laughs) what? Like, that is so crazy. Why can't we do the labs before I come here so we can talk about the labs? Like, I have a lot of questions about the labs. Um, so you're on this video visit. The doctor is talking to you about your full, the full picture of your metabolic health. What does it look like? What could it look like a year from now? Why does Calibrate work? How does it work? How do GLP-1 medications work? Why do we use them? What are the key tenets of our intensive lifestyle intervention? And here, this, this is really about explaining to members how we purpose-built the intensive lifestyle intervention around the medication, right? And we want to make sure that the physiological change that the medication makes is echoed in the physiological change that we'll ask you to make to the way you eat, sleep, exercise, and manage your emotional health so that over time, those things are sustained, And so that there's a positive flywheel, a positive cycle between those two things so that ultimately we can take you off the medication. And I think that's a really important part of our philosophy and a really important part of the business is creating that sustainability, making sure that we are figuring out how to solve this problem in an outcomes-based way and with controlled cost. I think that ultimately the only way to drive access is to control cost and and to deliver quality and to make sure you're doing both of those things is really, really hard. But the doctor will tee you up for your one-year program, which is 26 every other week visits face-to-face on video with a coach. 
that coach is helping you navigate the Calibrate program, which you're experiencing entirely digitally from your phone, from your computer. That program is built around the four pillars, eating, sleeping, exercising, emotional health, and the physiological change that we want you to make to your underlying metabolic health to support the medication throughout the year. That coach is not available whenever you want. That coach is not chatting with you between sessions. That chat is not there when you wake up in the morning and you have a decision to make. That coach is helping to unblock, helping you set goals, helping you celebrate wins. And that coach is helping you navigate the program. But ultimately, you are making the behavior change yourself. And that is deeply evidence-based, again, based a lot on Tom Wadden's research out of Penn. But this idea that you could asynchronously message a coach anytime that you want and a human or a bot would respond, there is no evidence ever to suggest that that is effective. And I think it's really, really meaningful and an important differentiation on Calibrate and other things in the market around that. So you are meeting with the coach every couple of weeks. And then I think the most, one of the most amazing pieces of the business that I've gotten to see is you are interacting with your community throughout. And so you're building relationships with other people who are going through the Calibrate program. You're going to cooking class with them. You're going on hikes with them in real life. You're talking to them in social media and you are like, ultimately building a community of people who are there to support you throughout your Calibrate experience. And that is, I think, probably the most magic part of the entire thing. Um, But over the course of the year, we are asking the entire, everyone doing Calibrate to do the same things, to figure out how to find five to 10 minutes to walk after a meal, to figure out how to understand like which foods are impacting their bodies in which way and how to eat less of the ones that are impacting their body negatively and more of the ones that are impacting their body and their metabolic health positively. And so I think the community aspect is so powerful in terms of putting people together who are going through the same program and giving them opportunities to connect. Thank you for sharing all that. Really helpful to get an in-depth look at what the actual treatment experience looks like. Something that I was thinking about as you were speaking is generally when, when undergoing various treatments for health conditions, we hear about how medication adherence is challenging, how getting continued engagement with your provider is is challenging. How does Calibrate overcome those challenges? Is it largely through technology, the community you mentioned, your your coaching model, a combination of of all of them, or or what's sort of the the secret to that? Secret is still a secret even to me. (laughs) (laughs) One of our goals this year is to define the Calibrate theory of engagement, to really figure out why our members engage. In the first year and a half, we really focused on driving engagement because we had a hypothesis that any engagement would equal outcomes. And now I think we have a more sophisticated hypothesis that there is certain engagement that drives outcomes better than others. And how do you drive that engagement and what motivates people around that? And I think at the end of the day, the best answer is that it's the face-to-face interaction. It's the face-to-face accountability. It's getting on Zoom every two weeks with your coach and wanting to tell them how great you're doing and how well you're doing through the program and wanting their help and wanting them to help like unblock when you're not doing well and when it's not working. And I think I just got our show rate appointment, our show rate information, but it's crazy. So out of the 13 sessions you have in your first 26 weeks, our members attend an average of 11 of them, which given everything happening in the world is pretty real. (laughs) And um, I think that it is that that human interaction and, and whether that comes through the community or through the coaching, I think it is the piece that we ultimately have to scale because that is my my best gut on what uh, my best guess on what's actually working here. Yeah, actually, to your point about getting on Zoom, I'd love to hear a bit about 
the decision to employ telehealth or, or virtual care. And my understanding is that originally Calibrate was going to have brick and mortar clinics, but you, I believe, launched right as the pandemic started and quickly pivoted to, to virtual care, which is a big transition. So how did you manage this decision and why was it the right long-term decision? And I guess the the other question is, you've been operating during a pandemic, so do you see having an in-person component in the future or remaining uh, virtual only? It's been my question the whole time. I think that we opened a physical clinic because we wanted to get results. We wanted to get the Calibrate program into the world and to see what happened and to get our friends and family to start trying it out and to help us figure out what the Calibrate program should entail. We closed the Calibrate clinic because (laughs) COVID hit and (laughs) no one could go anywhere. And we were in real lockdown. And we ultimately, during that time, realized that we could deliver the program virtually and we could scale the program virtually at a lower cost and to create more access. That is still the case. And so that is still the expansion model for now. I think over time, given the power that we've seen community have here, there's a real case to be made for clinics and for brick and mortar presence. Mm -hmm. But I think we will keep iterating. And the ultimate goal is three things. Prove that Calibrate works, prove that it works at scale, and then make it available and accessible. And to do those three things, I think we will have to iterate between online and offline But for now, we are really focused on just driving access and making sure that it's affordable. Thinking a bit more about costs, I think something about your model that I really like is this 100% money back guarantee policy if you don't reach 10% reduction in weight. And based on everything I've seen in healthcare, this really like simple model is, is pretty rare to see. But it seems like a really clear way to essentially take on risk and be accountable for outcomes, but we don't talk about it in this way. We talk about downside risk, upside risk, all that. And I and I don't think patients understand that for sure. So how did you arrive at this being the right strategy? It seems like this, again, aligns with the consumer-driven approach, but I would love to hear more about this. Well, I think you nailed it in your question, but the simplest things are always the most complicated things. (laughs) And from the day that we conceived of the business being a one-year program to match the programs that we saw in clinical research, we said we want to have a 100% money-back guarantee because we want to stand behind the outcomes of this product. And we want the business to work because the product works. And then we spent 18 months talking to lawyers (laughs) and figuring out how to do it legally. And then we released it in parallel um, to releasing our first results report and demonstrating what happened with those first 800 members. And I think that it is so incredibly important to me in a fee-for-service world to build models that are actually outcomes-based and to think about how to build those models simply. Because... The alternative is that my mom goes back to that doctor's office every three months for the rest of her life and stays on medication that they found out her insurance company would pay for. And that's not winning, right? Like that is not treating obesity. That is not solving obesity. That is medicating symptoms. And I think that ultimately what we wanted to do here was figure out what is the outcomes-based solution in the fee-for-service world. That's that's great. And I guess also just kudos in sticking with that process because I, to your point, it seems absolutely essential, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like an easy path. And I would imagine partly just because again, it doesn't seem like people are startups and, and other healthcare organizations are approaching it in 
this way. It's really great to hear about all the progress that Calibrate has achieved over the last few years. And we've talked a bit about what the future holds and how 2021 was really focused on proving that what you're doing works. And this year is is focused on proving that it works at scale. But but what else does the next year or so hold for for Calibrate? What is your what does your future look like? Once we prove that it works at scale, it's really about rolling it out in partnership with other people who are paying for it so you can increase access. And so by early next year, we will be live with our first employer partners um, and then hopefully some of our health plan partners and uh, PBM partners, depending how quickly they can move, but really starting to fundamentally change the access equation here and make sure that we are ourselves directly providing access to Calibrate for more people. And then continuing to change the conversation, continuing to publish what we're doing, continuing to publish the results of what we're doing so that we are setting the standard of care and other people can do it too, right? Like the fundamental way to increase access is not for one company to provide care for 200 million people. It's for one company to share what they're doing with the world and the world to start using that as a standard of care. That segues really well into the next question I wanted to discuss, which is equity and it's known that the prevalence of people living with obesity is higher in some populations than others. And, and due to the, the current cost of the program, it may be inaccessible to some people. So obviously going to payers and employers seems like a really critical way for expanding access. And I just wanted to hear if there are other ways that you're thinking about expanding access, whether it's directly within your your service and approach to delivering it or your technology or, or other ways you might be thinking about access? Health inequity through just straight racism, structural racism, systemic racism, or more specifically to my category through weight bias is pervasive. And it is, like you said, the data backs it up, but people of color, Hispanic people and non-Hispanic Black Americans specifically are disproportionately affected by obesity. And the ultimate thing to unlock here is access, right? And making sure that we can set a standard of care, determine what works, normalize obesity treatment, standardize obesity treatment, and then increase access. And to drive equity here, you have to make sure that you are doing those things in parallel, right? Like the normalizing, the changing the conversation has to happen at the same time as the setting the standard of care and increasing access. And so the mission of the business has always been to change the way the world treats weight with two meanings. One, to change the way we think about it and talk about it, the way we treat it. And two, to change the way that we actually deliver care, the way we treat it. Um, And so... Those two things can only happen together, and you have to constantly be focused on that healthcare iron triangle in terms of increasing access, quality, and decreasing cost at the same time. Let's discuss leadership for a bit, something that I'm making a point of discussing with all my podcast guests because you all are obviously leaders, and it's something that I'm really interested in and think that both myself and our listeners can learn a lot. So to start Isabel, what's your leadership style and why does it work for you? My leadership style, especially over the last couple of years at Calibrate, has been entirely focused on this concept of self-awareness as a journey rather than a destination. The idea that you have to work really hard at your own self-awareness and that you want to build a team and a company with self-awareness. And what we've tried to do at Calibrate is say, 
if you know what you're good at, if you know what you love doing, if you know what you're not good at, if you know what you don't love doing or what you even more importantly don't like doing, you will be able to find the overlaps between those things. What do I like doing? What am I good at? And what does the business need right now? But we have to hold Calibrate accountable for being self-aware. We have to hold the leadership team accountable for being self-aware. I have to be self-aware and each individual has to be self-aware. And if you can find those overlaps, you can always find the right things for the right people to work on at the right time. And that's what creates real operating leverage in a business. And that's what figure, helps you figure out what to do now versus what to do later. We call it the unlock at Calibrate. And every time we kick off a big project, we have people write out what is the unlock of this project? Why are we doing this project now versus later? And when we pick the people to lead the project and to work on the project, we're picking the people based on what do they know to be true about themselves? What are they good at? What do they like doing? What do they want to get more experience doing? And what do we need as a business right now? And the more that you can document this stuff and the more that you can write it down in today's virtual world, the better from my perspective. And so we keep user manuals. They're what we know mm -hmm. to be true about ourselves and we share them publicly. There are hundreds of them in a Calibrate shared drive and we update them all the time. I update mine almost once a month, I'd say. And it's just, it's a journey. Like it changes. What I'm good at changes. What I like doing changes. Sometimes I love doing something. And a few months later, I'm like, I'm never doing that again. I'm sick of that. I need to do that now. Um, and so I think if you're constantly finding the human potential by saying, what does my team love doing? What do they, what are they really good at? And how do I get them to do the thing that line to do that thing when it lines up with our, with what our business needs at the right time, then you're constantly creating unlocks. Yeah. I really, really like that. And I, I've done the the manual exercise before, but unfortunately I think haven't updated it over time. So that that's especially cool to hear. I also think I, I was reading an interview with a, another healthcare leader recently, and she was encouraging young people to reflect more often and deeply on both what they're good at and what they enjoy doing. And I think that it's actually something that's pretty hard to realize in early in your career. So I, I love just how Calibrate seems to really focus on that. And that actually fits in really well with my next question, which is around scaling culture as just having a culture focused on self-awareness seems like a key pillar. And specifically, I, I'm curious to hear more about how you're scaling culture in a largely remote environment and amidst a lot of really tremendously high growth. So could you share a bit about that? For better or worse, I've only scaled Calibrate in a remote world and I've only been a CEO in a remote world. And so my answer doesn't get to compare to other things, but I've definitely worked in a non-remote world as a comparison point. I think that what matters to me and what I've seen work for the team so far is just simplicity and repetition. The way that you bring culture to life is to repeat it. The way that you bring culture to life is to celebrate it. The way that you bring culture to life is to constantly and totally totally obsessively make sure that people are living the values day in and day out. And a lot of that comes to hiring and a lot of that comes to hiring intentionally and thoughtfully and making sure that your hiring is values-based, but more and more it comes to firing or separating from people and really thinking about like the way that you live your values, how you pick the people that don't work for your team and how you demonstrate like what doesn't work for your team and I think the most challenging conversations and the most challenging decisions are around how do you uphold your values when it's not working? Another area of fit that I'd, I'd like to discuss is around investors and Calibrate raised a 100 million Series B funding round in August. 
2021 led by Tiger Capital and Founders Fund. So what were you looking for in your investors for this round and why were these the right fit? I've actually always been looking for the exact same thing in investors, which is people who believe in me and the team and people who believe in the category, because the business model is going to keep shifting and we're going to keep iterating the business model and we're going to keep iterating the way that we make money. And I think that people who believe those two things are the people that you want next to you, the people that you want on the other end of your always late night phone calls and text messages. <laughs> um, I feel lucky that most of my investors live in California because I'm a night owl and a night worrier. And um, <laughs> they have a three-hour advantage on that. Um, but ultimately, that's what I've been looking for in every round. As we got to the Series B, I think it became also about people who would be real mirrors for me, right? And this this is, this is true of all of our rounds, but I think ultimately it became about finding partners who will continue to push me, who will continue to help me think through how can I be a better leader? How can I help to find the strategy of the business better? And how can we make sure that I am constantly growing and developing in lockstep with the business or as, as close to in lockstep with the business as possible? I, I like that approach in that a lot will change, but trying to to control or identify what will change the least and selecting people who who believe in those those pillars. My last question, as I imagine that many of our listeners are fired up about Calibrate now, is Calibrate hiring post-MBA roles and also any advice you have for business school students looking to join digital health startups? Calibrate is always looking for brilliant people who are passionate about our mission to join our team, especially if they are in it together and results-driven, which are the two core values that we are always looking for um, in our hiring process that you and I just walked through. And I would say that people who want to join digital health companies should go out and figure out which are the companies that I'm personally most excited about, which are the companies that I am personally most mission-aligned with. And how can I take the things that I'm good at, the things that I like doing, and do them in a place where I am super mission aligned and super excited every day to come to work to solve that problem? Awesome. That is great advice. Well, Isabel, I've really loved speaking with you. I learned a ton about the the space that Calibrate's working in, how you're thinking about growth, and also just the incredible impact you've had on the, the patients that you've worked with, as well as hearing about your leadership style that's really rooted in self-awareness. So so thank you so much for your time. It was so nice. Thank you for having me. 